Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, you're listening to Q, the podcast. I'm Talia Schlinger in today for Tom Power. It is Friday, July 24th. The results are in. There is one book you need to read this summer if you haven't already devoured it whole. Of course, you are welcome to read more than one book this summer, but this is the one that has won Canada Reads, CBC's annual Battle of the Books. It's been a tense, very exciting week of debates. And in a minute, you will meet the winning contestant and the author of the winning book. Should I tell you who it is? Should I tell them who it is? Should I tell them who it is? No, no, you have to wait. You have to stick around and listen to who it is. But uh, she's pretty awesome. So is the book. Uh, also, Coronation Street, longest running soap opera in the world. They are bringing coronavirus to Coronation Street as uh, part of part of the the not really part of the plot, but part of the aesthetic of the show. The show's producer Ian McLeod will be here to talk about how they are incorporating this this real life event into the plot of this incredibly long-running show and some of the uh, creative ways that they're incorporating coronavirus protocol on set. It's, it's quite funny. Plus, at some point, you have probably seen a celebrity have a public crisis in real time. I don't know what you think about it, um, but it's definitely interesting to talk about. Lisa Christensen and A Harmony are our cue this music panel. We will be talking more uh, about Kanye West's presidential proclamation, the first speech that he that he made recently, and what happens when mental illness plays a part in the way that we watch a celebrity behave uh, in public. What's the responsible, respectful way for the world, the media, to respond to that? Lots to talk about uh, with those two. After that, you will hear from Ralph Macchio. He was the original Karate Kid. And 30 years after first uh, delivering that classic crane kick to the face of, of his rival, Danny LaRusso, he put he put back on the uniform. He, he did the thing for a sequel series, I guess, called Cobra Kai. Netflix has just announced that they will be distributing the third season of Cobra Kai. And uh, we'll listen back to my chat with Ralph from a couple of years ago. And Elizabeth Acevedo a really gifted writer and poet about her new book called Clap When You Land, which tells the story of two sisters, one who grew up in Dominican Republic, one who grew up in New York, and how their lives come together after a tragic plane crash that kills their father. Show starts now. Every year. CBC holds a literary face-off to pick the book that every Canadian should go spend time with immediately. It's a competition called Canada Reads. This year's theme was One Book to Bring Canada into Focus. And here's how it works. Five panelists each chose a book they love all week. They've been debating each other, defending their books, getting eliminated one by one. And the last book standing for this year's Canada Reads is 
We Have Always Been Here by Samra Habib. It's a memoir that's split between Samra's childhood home in Pakistan, her arrival in Canada as a child refugee, and her experience coming out as a queer Muslim woman. Amanda Bruegel successfully debated and defended Samra's book all week. Amanda is an actor, and she's also made history with this competition. She became the first woman ever on Canada Reads to win defending the work of another female author. I'm so excited to welcome Samra and Amanda to Q. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Hi. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So it's been a grueling uh, week. Samra, I want to start with you. This is your first book. How are you feeling? Um, You know, I feel grateful. Um, And also I feel very connected to my path on this earth as an observer and a storyteller. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, even if there are significant differences between people, I like to search for the connective tissue, whether it's race, gender, or even just a universal experience of being a human being on this planet. And the response to the book has definitely helped me see that I can do that. And that is an approach that works for me. It sounds like that's something that Amanda fell in love with in, in the book in the first place. Amanda, you've said that we have always been here is intelligent, raw, and life-affirming. And you said reading it felt like reading the diary of a soulmate. I'm, I'm guessing even though your life experiences are very different than the ones portrayed in the book. Can you talk about how you came to choose We Have Always Been Here as the book you wanted to defend on the show? I love that summer, the connective tissue. Um, oh, thanks. Uh, well, it's it's because of that. It's because I, although our lives have been obviously very different, I felt um, this connection to Samra, um, someone who had been through a, a significant amount of hardships, but was still always trying to find um, the light and the joy. It was trying to respect others. And I, I really um, just related to that. And I, I mentioned yesterday, I, at the beginning, we were sent three books and I read the first portion of all of them. And I kept, while I was reading the other books, coming back to Summer's voice and was reading other books and I feel bad, but I was, I would be thinking about her and her character and her journey. So it was obvious that I had to, I had to pick, we have always been here. Hmm. It's a memoir. Uh, and Summer, you've called your book, a love letter to your younger self. I'm wondering what it was like for you to watch the story, a very personal story of your own life, be debated in such a public way. Um, you know, I I thought I was actually, um, you know, really surprised and it really sort of became clear to me how, you know, although my story is so specific, um, the different parts of my story that really touched different people and how they were being debated. Um, and it just sort of actually made me feel really validated. Huh. Is there something that that someone connected with that 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 really that you're thinking of as you say that? Um, you know, I would say um, Akil, you know, the fact that uh, the story resonated with him so much um, that, you know, it inspired him to sort of share his own story. Um, so I was really sort of uh, I really, really love the fact that, you know, it sort of spoke to him in that way and it res- resonated with him in that way. Right. Um, yeah. Akil Augustine, who's one of uh, one of the the other other panelists, it was very kind of sweet to watch to watch um, panelists who weren't necessarily debating or defending your book um, get on board because they were touched personally. That has to be meaningful. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm Talia Schlinger sitting in for Tom Power here talking to the winners of this year's Canada Reads competition, author Samra Habib and actress Amanda Bruegel, who defended Samra's book, We Have Always Been Here. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation in Canada Reads 2020, particularly online, focused on on gender. We were just speaking about your fellow panelists, and um, there were some disagreements with Akil Augustine during the show. There was an <laughs> off-color moment from contestant George Canyon. Um, how do you think gender informed this season of Canada Reads? Oh, uh, I mean, I, I think that... Uh, gender was sort of the the focus uh, if we're talking about online um and unfortunately it, i think it took away the conversation from a lot of the books um hmm. it was really interesting to sort of see how men and women communicate in real time and uh how uh they deal with conflict in real time it was a huge learning lesson for me, I feel like I am going to have to have a couple sessions with my therapist afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but I mean, I, I hope that it sparked a, a lot of conversations, and um, I hope that uh, we all, all of the panelists, I mean, go away with a, sort of a respect for one another and try to do some work. Yeah, bef yeah, before you have time to unpack all of it with your with your therapist, I know it's really fresh. Yes. But is there <laughs> is there a lesson that you're that you're thinking of now as you as you bring that up that you've already taken away from the experience of of debating in real time? Um, I think that uh, when um, when I feel uh, and I'm talking from the perspective of a woman that my power or my my voice is being questioned, um, I. I don't need to uh, uh, apologize for that. I, I don't need to necessarily go back hard at someone, but for example, George's apology, I felt it was beautiful and it was lovely, but I still had to let him know that while I accepted the apology, it was hurtful. So I think it's just uh, allowed me to um, sit more confidently with my own voice. Yeah, I'm just going to say in case people missed it that what he was apologizing for was that in the previous edition when you were delivering this uh, tie-breaking vote, um, uh, you were you were eliminating the novel he was defending, and he he said, "Girls, girls, girls," um, sort of as as he was. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm characterizing that correctly, but I just want people to understand yes. what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so thank you, um, thank you for that. And uh, Samra, what was it like for you watching watching this all play out? Was there anything that as a viewer surprised you about this competition? Um, I, um, did, did anything surprise me? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think that I was surprised by anything. I, if anything, I think it just sort of made me feel validated, uh, that, you know, the story that I had written was an important one and something that needed to be told. Um, and it was really kind of reassuring to see that, um, you know, other panelists who had really different experiences from mine were sort of able to see that as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate what Amanda said a moment ago also, and I, I just want to not have it um, lost. You said that that uh, the conversation around gender kind of overshadowed maybe in a, in a way talking about craft in, in particular online. And I just wanted to to note that and even say that I'm reflecting on that as we're talking right now and I'm asking you questions about gender rather than rather than craft. Just want to mm -hmm. acknowledge that. 
Um, Samra, the theme of this competition was one book to bring Canada into focus. And your book is split between Pakistan and Toronto. It touches on the experience of, of cultivating your identity in between these different places. What do you hope that your memoir offers to Canadians? Mm. Um, you know, I just think that it's so important to ensure that um, historically marginalized voices are given a seat at the table to broaden the collective understanding of the Canadian narrative. And, you know, I think that is definitely key to building a more inclusive Canada where everyone feels like they belong. And I hope that, you know, this is another step towards understanding uh, the experiences of marginalized communities in Canada. Um, and, you know, I also hope that there will be Black and more Indigenous writers on Canada Reads next year to sort of, um, you know, increase that understanding. Amanda, I want to take it to you in light of what Samra's just said. You are the first female contestant to win Canada Reads while defending a female author. You're both women of color. Does that hold a special significance for you? Oh, absolutely. I cried all day yesterday. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my kids cried. My mom cried. Everybody was crying. Um, I, I've, I've had a, a, a few, a, a lot of peaks in my career. And I do have to say that uh, uh, by far, this is uh, the most um, accomplished I have felt in, in my career. And it has nothing to do with me. It's just the idea of, um, I said online yesterday, a lot of people have uh, done a lot of work to uh, allow my voice to have a, a platform and so this was really important to me that while being offered this opportunity that I I give someone else who's so deserving of a voice a platform and so I hope in the smallest way some of my defenses helped and now Summer who deserves to be heard around the country is going to be heard so it's mm -hmm. it's um, I'm proud. That's beautifully put. Congratulations to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Amanda Bruegel is an actor and the winner of Canada Reads 2020 for defending the book. We have always been here by Samra Habib. literally just putting down my tea as this is playing. It's the opening theme of the British TV series Coronation Street. The show is the world's longest running soap opera. But tonight, it's going to borrow a storyline from the real world. The coronavirus pandemic will arrive in Weatherfield. That's the fictional part of Greater Manchester where the show is set. I should remind you, here on CBC, we're a little bit behind the UK on episodes, so you'll notice this change in a few weeks' time. But what does this change mean exactly? And how will the pandemic be portrayed on TV? Ian McLeod is the series producer and he's here to explain. Ian, welcome to Q. Hello there. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. So now that the coronavirus has come to Coronation Street, what changes are people going to notice when they watch the show? Oh, well, uh, primarily um, visual ones, I think, really, because uh, in keeping with the rest of the world, uh, in Britain, we've got signage everywhere telling you what to do to keep safe and to keep, you know, the biosecurity levels high. So there'll be a lot of visual changes in so far as the rovers return. Uh, we'll have signs in there saying keep two metres away from, you know, the, the nearest person. And actually the rovers in, in the short term, at least, will just be selling takeaway beverages, takeaway food. Same applies to Roy's Rolls. There won't be anybody sitting in there eating their breakfast. It'll all be takeaways 
obviously you'll see certain characters in certain contexts wearing face coverings and face masks. Uh, you'll notice people social distancing. Um, the tricky, one of the trickier things we found was that obviously our actors um, don't tend to live with each other, but they're playing characters that often do live with each other. So the challenge was, you know, how do you deal with that on screen? Because a married couple clearly would be able to sit next to each other and, you know, embrace each other and kiss each other. But the actors that play them can't. So how on earth do you deal with that? Well, so how did you how did you deal with it? <laughs> how, how did you deal with that? Well, uh, it's incredibly tricky, really. I mean, what we tried to do was avoid any scenes where that might naturally occur um, and use clever camera trickery to make them appear closer than they actually are. So use a long lens and back the cameras off a bit and make it look like they're closer than they really are using some foreshortening techniques. Um, but it's been tricky. You know, the, the, the bread and butter of uh, soaps and Coronation Street is no different. Are things like, you know, uh, illicit affairs and passionate, steamy embraces? Well, not at the moment, they're not. And, uh, you know, pe- people having fist fights in the Rover's Return? Well, not at the moment, they're not. You know, so it's, it has been challenging to work out how do you take all these things that everyone's come to expect from a soap and do it when no one can actually touch each other. You know, right. we, in fact, one of the trickiest things we've done, actually, we, I think we took leave of our senses briefly, but we decided, let's do the world's first uh, socially distanced uh, stunt. Um, so stunt? The first episodes you'll see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, um, we took on a post-pandemic stunt in basically week one of us returning to filming. Um, and the stunt requires one character to push another character out of the way of a moving car and then get hit by the car. And we had to do it in such a way as nobody touched anyone else or indeed came within two meters of anyone else. So it was in- incredibly uh, challenging. And uh, uh, luckily, um, we we, ha- we found a mannequin that roughly resembled one of the people involved in the stunt. And I kid you not, uh, the mannequin <laughs> with the wig on um, stood in for one of the characters. But, but I defy you to watch it when it goes on screen and spot that. It's so seamless, thanks to our technically ingenious um, kind of backstage crew but yeah honestly uh, everything has been considered and you know if the solution works we'll go with it however strange it might seem. Ian it's a whole new world of creativity. I I also read somewhere tell me if this is true or not. I read somewhere that in some, that in one scene on a show that that somebody's real life spouse was brought in to like put on a wig so that they could like be kissing somebody that that looked like the actor but it was somebody that they were safe with. Is that true? No. Uh, didn't happen on Coronation Street. Okay. I gather it did happen on an American soap. Oddly enough, I won't divulge too many confidences, but some of our cast are in relationships and do live together. Ooh. Um, so it has crossed our mind only briefly to go, well, you know, should we just fictionally speaking put those two characters together romantically? Because then they could just kiss and hold hands and do all the normal stuff. But we quite quickly moved away from that because it would be, uh, as they say, the tail wagging the dog a little bit. Um, but no, we haven't done that. We We do actually, though, in a similar way, we've got a story coming up uh, involving a, a young child, uh, and there was a requirement in that that we see the young child in its mother's arms, which we can't clearly do because the, the actor that plays the mother is not biologically the mother of the little girl. So we, we are using the child's real mum for that and doing a little bit of camera trickery and wizardry to, to cheat that. So, yeah, it, no no real-life uh, romantic partners have been paired up yet, but you know, mother-daughter, we have certainly done that. Oh, I like that added layer of potential potential drama, though, to this to this soap opera. Um, how are how are you going to explain the pandemic on Coronation Street? Like, will it just suddenly appear, or is it a so, slow creep? We couldn't really do the slow creep, to be honest with you, because um, back in March, you know, we were we were halfway through filming a whole bunch of episodes, and then suddenly, boom, um, the country went into full lockdown very quickly. So we kind of had, uh, you know, lots of material in the can, sort of part finished episodes. 
So when we came back, just purely because, you know, it's, I'll be honest with you, it's been a real challenge just keeping the machinery turning. So the last thing we wanted to do is go back and reshoot sort of two and a half weeks of material. So we took the view that we would finish off those episodes and the universe that the viewers will see is a pre-pandemic universe where people are, you know, there's no mention of coronavirus, no one's wearing masks and, and the like. Uh, and then suddenly overnight, the next episode, everybody is wearing masks and everybody is hand washing all the time and all the rest of it. And that will be odd from a viewer point of view. And I, I think, you know, people know what's going on outside their front door. So I think they'll be quite forgiving. But we couldn't really do the slow version because if we'd, you know, if we'd put episodes on screen at the end of July where coronavirus was just starting to become an issue, we'd look kind of four, five, six months out of date, really. So we had to just jump in with both feet and embrace the fact or rather ignore the fact that it's going to be a bit strange to go from, you know, a pre-pandemic to a post-pandemic universe overnight and and just get on with the show, really. But the, the main thing I think viewers will notice, and it was a big um, relief to me, I guess, was the storylines are basically still the same. We haven't had to change a great deal at all. Um, and where we have, it's just because um, characters or rather actors weren't available. But everywhere else, the storylines rolled on. And because Corey's all about brilliant writing and humour and incredible performances, that's all still there, whether or not people are you know, washing their hands or remaining two metres apart from each other. The, the show's still fabulous. And I, I really hope that your listeners will agree when they when they watch it, it was for me as a fan of the show, just watching the first episodes post pandemic and going, Oh, okay. And, and relax. They're great. They're just what Corey's always been few, you know, cause it was a nervous time when you think, you know, what will the show look like now? Well, reassuringly, it's every bit as good as it always was. Well, a beautiful thing about that is it's such a daily part of people's lives. And I know that you've cut down the show schedule a bit to three episodes a week rather than six episodes a week. But at such an mm. uncertain time, um, I just want to say it sounds like a really beautiful offering to people to give them sort of some semblance that that something that they love or take comfort in or, or enjoy um, is is ongoing. So job done on that. Yeah, well, I, we all felt the, the weight of that. It's funny, a few people have said, did you feel under lots of pressure to sort of make sure the show carried on and make sure it didn't fall off the air. And I think what they were meaning was, you know, are your bosses putting loads of pressure on you and sort of cracking the whip? And actually, not really, but the pressure I did feel was from those people that you're talking about, the people for whom, you know, when the rest of the world is on fire, you know, Coronation Street is that kind of beacon of familiarity and beacon of comfort and it's <clears throat> normality, isn't it? You know, so I felt that pressure, you know, I felt like the nation never more so um, than now, were relying on Coronation Street as a kind of, you know, a bit of light in the darkness. So that made me feel under a certain amount of pressure, I have to say, yeah. But I, I really think that the whole team's pulled together and delivered something that I, I just know the audience is going to love when they, when they see it. Beautiful. Thank you, Ian. Nice talking to you. You too. Ian McLeod is the series producer for Coronation Street. The show will incorporate the coronavirus pandemic into its plot starting tonight. In Canada, you'll notice the changes in a few weeks' time. You can watch new episodes of Coronation Street on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays at 7 p.m., 7.30 in Newfoundland on CBC. Or you can watch anytime over at CBC Gem. I'm Talia Schlinger in for Tom Power. Here are some stories we want to tell you about, starting off with some Taylor Swift. You are hearing the very latest music from Taylor Swift that just dropped. That's Mirrorball off of Taylor's eighth studio album, Folklore. Taylor worked on the record with the Nationals' Aaron Dessner, who produced a good chunk of the songs. Bonnie Vare even makes an appearance on the song Exile. 
Taylor wrote the song in isolation during the pandemic. She tweeted about the release of her album saying, quote, in isolation, my imagination has run wild and this album is the result. I've told these stories to the best of my ability with all the love, wonder and whimsy they deserve. Now it's up to you to pass them down. Folklore is out now. And now, a big congratulations is in order for the director, Peter Huang, who directed the music video for the song you're hearing right now, Far Away, by Canadian artist Jesse Reyes. Uh, Peter just won the grand prize of $20,000 from this year's Prism Prize. The Prism Prize is a national juried award recognizing outstanding artistry in Canadian music videos. The ceremony just took place through a virtual award show. So if you want to catch that, go to prismprize.com. Sound off by Critical Frequency. Hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with From Something Else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. The freedom does not come from an election. The freedom comes from you not loading up pornography. The freedom comes from you not taking the Percocet. The freedom comes from you not downing your brother and your sister. The freedom comes from you putting that gun down and not shooting people at the gas station. It has nothing to do with this election. That is Kanye West speaking at his first presidential rally this past Sunday in South Carolina. Ever since Kanye announced his presidential campaign, he's been speaking out on topics like his policy proposals, his stance on abortion, even the abolitionist Harriet Tubman. And people have had some strong reactions, outrage, cynicism, mockery, and some concern in there, too, for the state of Kanye's mental health and well-being. It all raises some questions. When an artist or a public figure is behaving in an unusual or erratic way, how should we respond? How should the media, the audience, the fans take it? And are we really equipped to judge that person fairly? Should we be judging them at all? Uh, no, man. Our cue, this music panel, is here to unpack some of this. A Harmony is a freelance music journalist and critic. She joins us from her home in Toronto. Hey, Harmony. Hey, Talia. Hey, and Lisa Christensen is an arts reporter and producer with CBC's On the Coast. She's in Vancouver. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Hi. So, Harmony, let's start with you. Your reaction to Kanye's first presidential stop last Sunday? 
Yes, uh, it was sad for me to watch. It was erratic. Uh, parts of it were incoherent. Uh, you mentioned he shared controversial opinions about Harry Tubman and about slavery, which seemed to anger the crowd. Um, at one point, he broke down in tears and sobbing as he described uh, abortion and his experiences with it. Um, descriptions of the rally kind of ranged from unconventional to chaotic, but all I saw was uh, sadness. It was sad. I saw a bunch of people around Kanye who can see that something might be wrong right now and see that Kanye may be in crisis, but there seemed to be this collective helplessness. Uh, people want to give him help and they see that he might need help, but they don't know how best to deliver it. Hmm. Lisa, what did you make of it? Oh, uh, yeah, all of that and more. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I didn't watch it live, so it's almost as you know, your Twitter feed just blows up and you look in and it's almost as if you're watching footage from a car crash. Um it was chaotic, rambling, frightening, uh, disrespectful to so many people. And as it turns out, it was a lead up to some more, even more troubling days for Kanye and his family. So it's kind of hard to watch it now just in isolation because we know kind of what preceded it. We know what came after. Um, I don't think it was the best way, let's just say that, to start off a presidential bid. Hmm. Harmony, you talked about sort of seeing the collective helplessness of people close to Kanye around him. Back when we talked about Kanye's presidential run earlier this month together, you were expressing concerns also about the tone of media coverage around Kanye, particularly given his his history with mental health. How would you uh, characterize that coverage, I guess, since the last time that we spoke? Yeah, so the last time that we spoke, I was concerned that there seemed to be this uh, mocking tone in the reporting when talking about Kanye's presidential bid. I'm still seeing some of that uh, in TMZ and The Guardian, for instance, but other outlets have seemed to pivot to the more somber, dramatic tone. So People Magazine, for instance, is really playing up on his family's worries uh, for his mental health right now. They use words like concerning and alarming to describe the unfolding events and really play up to the drama of it all. Um, but one thing that seems to remain the same in the media coverage, even if the tone has changed, um, is that the public consumption of it and the media's coverage, there just seems to be a spectacle beneath it all. Uh, whether you're playing up the drama or you're mocking um, or fans are expressing performative concerns or snapping jokes, there seems to be this element of spectacle, like the public is entertained by this. And somehow, even though Kanye is the center of this story, he seems to be getting lost in it for our entertainment's sake. Yikes. There's well, there's also this this thing about people celebrating um, creative geniuses, I guess, as society sees them sometimes, like the, the mad scientist or the, the, you know, the genius who behaves erratically in public, but we, we forgive it because it's for the sake of, of their art. How do you think those established tropes that we have um, maybe about, about genius and mental health play into all this? Uh, yeah, I think those tropes play heavily into this situation. Kanye West is in many ways a musical genius. He is forward thinking, he's creative, he is a visionary, he pushes boundaries in his music. So in some, uh, in this moment, some may look at him and see someone whose mental health may be suffering, but others may see a free thinker who goes against the grain. And these things can both be true at the same time. Um, he has so much power and so much influence. If I, for instance, were to say that I was running for president and I didn't have a, a, a campaign platform and I hadn't filled out the paperwork, people would easily dismiss me. But because of Kanye is, uh, by virtue of his celebrity and his creative genius, when he says it, every major media outlet reports it. Uh, he gets crowds gathering at his rallies. He gets thousands of retweets within minutes, no matter how erratic his, his tweets may be. So 
Um, he's legitimately influential and people do legitimately support him because of his creative genius. But that might make it harder for him to see that he might need some help right now. Hmm. His wife, Kim Kardashian, hinted at that as well in this really heartfelt statement that she she made, like she po- she pointed out his genius and, and what a complicated person he is. And I just want to zero in. It was a pretty lengthy quote, but I want to zero in on this one part where she says, um, quote, we as a society talk about giving grace to the issue of mental health as a whole. However, we should also give it to the individuals who are living with it in times when they need it the most. I kindly ask that the media and public give us the compassion and empathy that is needed so we can get through this. Lisa, what did you make of Kim's statement? Uh, Well, it was, as she said, the first time she'd kind of spoken out on this issue, which uh, is kind of surprising because we have had uh, Kanye himself admitting he's he's having these struggles um, you know and I and I do think that one of the things that was missing is a little bit of instruction on what does that look like to have empathy and compassion for someone does it mean that you don't sort of feel like you're enabling them by you know retweeting or or, or you know or, or kind of sharing your thoughts on the story uh, does it mean for a media outlet not to cover? his press conference like it's, you know, a regular press event. So I think the the public, the ones who are, you know, definitely, let's say even fans of Kanye's music are left very confused as to what does it look like to show empathy and compassion um, and at the same time, you know, enjoy someone's music, but at the same time be alarmed and afraid and, and worried that, that, you know, that, that we don't understand what he's capable of or what he could perhaps do to himself. Harmony, are you are you uh, touched by Kim's statement? Are you are you buying it? Is anything else going on? So I think Lisa points at something very important, that there was a lack of instruction uh, in that statement. And that kind of plays up my opinion on it is that it was rather empty. I do see a superficial layer of concern there. But beneath that, I see Kim trying to slowly separate her personal brand from that of her husband. She talks a lot about how difficult it is to be a family member kind of sitting by and watching him, uh, you know, go through this crisis. And she talks a lot about um, her feelings in this and centering how difficult it is for her and her family to witness this. I think she's trying to soften the public to the idea that she may be divorcing him soon. And I think, you know, He's becoming a liability to the Kardashian empire. He is uh, slowly falling out of favor with his own fan base. And therefore, that might have a spillover effect onto the Kardashian brand unless Kim gets in front of it. So I see her trying to soften us to the idea that she's leaving him soon without uh, appearing as though she's cold hearted or unfeeling. She's trying to position herself as this concerned, helpless wife who was pushed to her own personal limit um, so that when she does eventually sever ties or separate her brand from his, uh, she won't uh, be viewed in in a poor light by the public. We have just a couple minutes left in the queue. This panel here on on CBC. I'm talking to A Harmony and Lisa Christensen. Uh, Kanye West isn't the only celebrity in the news, in part because of public perceptions of their mental health. There's the free Britney Spears campaign that's been getting a lot of attention off and on for some time. Uh, for those who aren't a- aware of it, just Lisa, in brief, what do we know about the motivations behind this free Britney campaign? Well, besides the heartbreakingness of it all, uh, yeah, it dates back to 2009. And uh, this is when Brittany herself was, you know, showing some public erratic behavior, um, some mental health concerns. There was a conservator uh, that was her father that became responsible for her decisions 
you know, how she spent her money, uh, you know, how she was living her life. And over the years, there's been a lot of suspicion about that from fans and the, you know, the hashtag Free Britney uh, videos. You'll also find now this year a change.org petition uh, to try and get this uh, conservator state changed for her, which is, you know, incredibly irresponsible and and depressing to watch uh, fans engage this way uh you know sending out instagram posts to her like send us a message things like this and uh yeah so i have to say if there's a way to watch fans um you know not help things i think watching this campaign has been the way to say this is not compassion and empathy Hmm. Harmony, in, in just the minute that we have left, what do you make of, of the Free Britney campaign and, and the role that media plays in, in mitigating all of this? Right. So I'm concerned that fans have taken it upon themselves to decide that this conservatorship is something that Britney needs to be emancipated from. Um, sources who are closer to her, like her brother, for instance, have said that although Britney has expressed wanting out of the conservatorship, that in a lot of ways that arrangement has been beneficial for her. And I don't think it is uh, the fans' place, especially as strangers who don't know her, to decide that this isn't the best thing for her. Uh, in terms of what media can do to kind of mitigate all of this, it's a question that kind of has no concrete answers. A journalist's job is to report and to document. They're not psychologists, they're not lawyers. And uh, just like the fans, they don't know Britney Spears or even Kanye West personally. So it's not up to the media to make assessments or judgments. I think the best thing they can do is just be sensitive in their reporting, add context to their reporting, and just be as neutral as possible, be mindful of the word choices, and check their own personal biases as they're reporting on these stories. Hmm, good practices for journalism in general, huh? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Well, thank you so much, both of you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. A Harmony is a freelance music critic and Lisa Christensen is an arts reporter in Vancouver. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. Let's talk about some of the most intense and bitter rivalries in film. Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed, Ferris Bueller versus Mr. Rooney, or Danny LaRusso versus Johnny Lawrence. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is the moment we've been waiting for. The present day. Daniel LaRusso is going to fight? That's the beginning of the final fight from The Karate Kid, the one where Danny LaRusso crane kicks the bully Johnny Lawrence right in the face. Ever since uh, the first film came out in the mid-80s, people have been asking Ralph Macchio, the original Karate Kid, over and over again to return to that role. It took about 30 years, but he finally agreed. He stars as a grown-up Danny LaRusso in the show Cobra Kai. Seasons 1 and 2 are on YouTube. And last month, Netflix Netflix announced that it's picked up the series for season 3. I had a chance to speak with Ralph Macchio when the show premiered. And he says, when you settle back into a classic rivalry like the one in The Karate Kid, it feels like no time has passed at all. It's surreal. I mean, this is really decades and decades, decades apart. And yet uh, staring across the mat, you know what? It was like snapping back into yesterday. It's just we were a little bit more wrinkly around <laughs> around the eyes. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, as they say, we don't, don't put the camera too close. Pull back, pull back. But uh, it kind of – our chemistry together was just, you know, it was just second nature. I mean, one thing about – 
the Karate Kid, certainly in the stuff that I had with Billy back in the day and certainly all the stuff I had with uh, the late great Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi, there was such great chemistry with the actors that were placed in these roles. You know, we just – it feels like we were just the right people at the right time and – and that is not lost over over 34 years' time. You know, we each have, with Billy and I, under our skin, we, we've lived these characters. They've become bigger than us. They've become part of pop culture around the world. And and so when you put, throw those shoes and put the geese back on, if you will, it's a little bit like riding a bike. It's like yesterday, you know. It just feels very much at home and uh, just the wisdom and the life that has passed on in these decades is what you bring to the table now. So as as Danny LaRusso now, you wear the gi, but you also wear uh, button-down shirts and own a car dealership. That's sort of that's sort of your main hustle. Uh, the Karate Kid is aged 30 years, and, and I'd like for people to have a listen to this. We are chopping prices on SUVs, crossovers, sedans, and convertibles. So come on down and visit the Russo Auto Group. Every customer leaves with their very own bonsai tree. We kick the competition. <laughs> Classic. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> the uh, the creators of the show early on in the pitch when they first uh, pitched the concept to me before I signed on to move forward. Um, they were talking about the you know he's become the auto king of the San Fernando Valley in in, in Southern California and I I sort of smiled and laughed at it and I I get it it made total sense I said well how but how cheesy is it going to be and we figured out a way to balance it um, where he you know because uh, you know he had all those he has the forty seven Ford convertible that Miyagi gave him back in the in for his sixteenth birthday and and Miyagi had all those classic cars it sort of was a natural evolution that that maybe he went into to the uh, auto business in uh, in California because there's so many of them. I'm wondering if there's a sort of meta uh, application of that idea to you yourself, Ralph Macchio, in in this moment, and you know, being out on doing what we're doing right now, really like talking to people about your legacy and the expectation that people have that you'll talk about doing the crane kick or talking about being the kid who caught the fly and the chopsticks and that whole thing. Like, is is there is, is there a part of that for you that that feels tiresome, or does it feel comfortable, or some sort of combination? Uh, some sort of combination, I would say, you know, because I would say 15 years ago, I'd be rolling my eyes and not wanting to have the conversation. I never shied away from the conversation. I'm not one of those. It makes no sense to me. I hear these actors say, well, he'll do the interview, but uh, but you can't ask him about this. You can't ask him about that because he's on to other things now. To me, you know, you want to talk about all the things you're doing. But uh, when a movie like The Karate Kid it, it comes around, which is very rare to stand the test of time for decades and decades for generations, it becomes the audience's movie. It becomes – I mean it becomes – it's bigger than the actor playing the role and it becomes an inspirational story, inspirational character. So to to undercut that and not embrace it um, is, is kind of a slap to your audience in my uh, opinion. So that's why I embrace it and, and, uh, and fortunately for me, I seem really highly intelligent right now because I picked this show to be the one to go back to the well with and it is, uh, it is well received uh, critically and, and uh, from the audience perspective. So I, I feel pretty good uh, about that. So it makes me enjoy talking about it 
uh, even more. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Ralph Macchio uh, here on Q. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. Ralph Macchio is the original Karate Kid. So there are moments in the new series Cobra Kai that I loved because they felt like they were actively trying to address some of the more outdated parts of the Karate Kid. For example, mm-hmm. the way that gender um, was dealt with in in the original movie. In one scene in, in this current incarnation in Cobra Kai, um, Johnny is, is a sensei and he is told off by his student for suggesting that girls are weak because they have tiny hollow bones. And his student says, you know, my, my guidance counselor would say that that's genderizing. Uh, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, my guidance counselor says that certain words perpetuate the sexist worldview that could trigger... Quiet! From now on, you won't listen to your guidance counselor. You're going to listen to me. Is that understood? It, it, it was such a wonderful moment because um, if you watch the, the original movie through the lens of today, you think, wow, like, you know, there, there are some things that, that wouldn't fly now. So I'm wondering if you were intentionally trying to make a statement or if that's just a product of, of making Cobra Kai in 2018. It was part of the pitch and, and discussion how how we could, in the case of Johnny Lawrence, uh, Billy Zapka's character, have a guy that's locked in the '80s in that old uh, you know line of thinking, and also very politically incorrect by today's standards. And that it was important to have that and show that difference because it was a way to say. You know, sometimes the pendulum swings so far. Everyone is so hands off and afraid, white gloves with everything. And then on the other side, there's the the, the uh, that we've come a long way and and want to uh, be more inclusive or more um, open minded or understanding of 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 uh, sensitive issues. And Johnny Lawrence has no one of my favorite lines is when he goes. The kid says something about, like, well, I'm, 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 you know, on the spectrum. He goes, yeah, well, I don't know what that is, but get off of it. <laughs> oh, I yeah. Just, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, you're saying, wow, that's really touchy. But it's done in this entertaining way that we all say, you know, we get that. That's kind of, that's kind of funny from the Lawrence perspective and understanding from the other perspective. And I think they, they go, um, you know, they straddle that line pretty well. Yeah, it, it's so neat just to see a visual representation of different generations having those conversations, you know, um, and and sort of legitimizing the way that that grownups might have talked about things in the past and the way that kids that see things now. Is, it's it's really neat. Um, so one person that is missing from Cobra Kai uh, is Pat Morita, the late great Pat Morita, the original Mr. Miyagi, who died in two thousand and five. Ralph, I'm wondering. I know that you were very close, and you had this at least that you were close professionally, you had this beautiful chemistry on screen. I'm wondering what that loss was like for you. You know, it's been, yeah, it's been over 10, 10 years now. Uh, and Pat hasn't been uh, with us. And he, you know, his legacy, thankfully, we have that in his in his work. And uh, certainly in the, in the uh, portrayal of Mr. Miyagi, he was just a perfect match of the right actor in the right role. And I always call it a soulful magic is something that we had together on screen and was very important to me that that was woven throughout the Cobra Kai series and continues to be uh, a presence in LaRusso's life, although in the early part of the season – um, it's that sort of – Mr. Miyagi had passed about eight years prior. He – you know, Pat was uh, – you know, he's one of those guys that just – that that knew that he had the opportunity of a lifetime and seized it and did not uh, take it for granted. Did you guys keep in touch after he shot the movie? 
Uh, we did. He was always better at that than me because he, you know, you were wiser and older and wiser. I was younger and you know, just doing what mm. <laughs> a twenty-something-year-old would be doing. We we kept in touch. Uh, certainly later on, um, I got to uh, a, a moment that was uh, very special. I got to at Lincoln Center in New York. I presented him with a lifetime achievement. Award the Asian Excellence Awards at, at, uh, at Lincoln Center, and uh, so I got to say everything I would ever want to say about him and our relationship and our on-screen chemistry and our friendship. And that was about a year before he passed away. So I always go back to that as as um, you know, you always want to turn back the clock and say the right things. But uh, when when someone passes, uh, but for my uh, sake, I, I got to say those things in a public forum and. And uh, and then I stayed in touch with him after after that as well. Um, yeah, he would always. I just get these phone calls in the middle of the night. Say, you know, he called himself Uncle Popsy or whatever. He did. <laughs> you know, he was he was a stand up comic. He started comedy at thirty years old. That's when he started. You know, uh, um, trying to uh, delving into the entertainment business, and then Happy Days came after that, and then. Mr. Miyagi was the role that nobody wanted him for except the director because um, everyone says it's Arnold from Happy Days. I mean how is he going to play this great uh, statuesque Mr. Miyagi? Well, he found the way that you know that Mr. Miyagi was entertaining yet had all the breath and weight you needed to have in that mentor, that what I call the human Yoda to uh, the young Skywalker in the Karate Kid uh, universe. Ralph Macchio, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, this is great, and I, I I reach out to everyone to check out the show. Um, it's a it's a lot of it's a lot of fun, lot of a lot of heart, a lot of soul, a lot of laughs, and some kick ass action scenes. <laughs> and you do mean kick? Wait, was it hard to get your flexibility? Did you have your flexibility back? Still? It's Did you still really killing me. I just had, okay. I just uh, had my <laughs> my trainer yesterday. I'm starting to get ready for season two, uh, as in which I'm tipped off that I may have a little bit more uh, uh, physical work to do. And it's it is tougher at fifty plus years old than it was when I was, uh, you know, twenty. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Got to keep keep it limber. Keep it limber. That's something I'm thinking about in quarantine, how to keep keep those stretches going. Ralph Malchio talking about the high kicks. He's the original Karate Kid talking about returning to that role after more than 30 years. I spoke with him when his series Cobra Kai premiered. Uh, you can find seasons one and two on YouTube. And last month, Netflix announced that it is picking up the show for season three. So stay tuned for that. I'm Talia Schlinger, in for Tom Power. When Elizabeth Acevedo was a teenager, she learned about a plane crash near her home in Queens, New York. It was a flight bound for the Dominican Republic. Most of the passengers were of Dominican descent, and many were returning home. For years, Elizabeth kept circling back to the tragedy, just thinking and wondering about the people on that plane. And now she's written a novel inspired by what she learned. It's called Clap When You Land. It's about two sisters who live in different parts of the world, one in the Dominican Republic, the other in New York. They share a father, who they call Poppy, but they know nothing of each other until their father dies in a plane crash. Elizabeth Acevedo is a National Book Award winner. She's also an award-winning slam poet. Welcome to Q, Elizabeth. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. I have to confess that I just finished reading the last pages of of your book just while I was waiting to get on the line together, and my eyes are still a little bit mist, like mystic Aww. from it. <laughs> well, I'm so glad it touched you. It moved me a lot. Um, so you've dedicated the book uh, in memory to those who lost their lives on American Airlines Flight 587. What was it about that tragedy that stuck with you over the years? I mean, I, I think that the juxtaposition of when it happened was really important, that it was two months and one day after the attacks on the World Trade Center. And growing up as a young Afro-Dominican New Yorker, I went from watching right this major um, tragedy happen, and I'm, I'm speaking here of the World Trade Center and the ways in which my school galvanized to get counselors and the ways in which it was always on TV and just this inundation of um, feeling lost and how do we overcome. And then two months later, this really small Latinx community is hit pretty hard with something that jostles, you know, what we thought of ourselves. Everyone knew someone who was on that flight. And I just remember like, There were no guidance counselors, even though my school had a large percentage of Dominicans in it. There didn't seem to be as much coverage once it was determined that, you know, the plane going to the Dominican Republic wasn't felled by terrorism. It was just this clear demarcation of like, who is American and who is allowed the dignity of their story being told in a way that that they are remembered? Mm -hmm. And who is just going to be, you know, your kind of your community's personal um, injury? And, and I think as a child, you may not be able to make these grand distinctions, but I do remember being like, why aren't more people talking about this? Mm. The way that you dip, dip into the sudden grief of losing somebody in a plane crash is so remarkable. Like you, um, There are lines that stick with me, like you say that the house is a living sadness or even the, the floorboards weep. It just sounds like it's so visceral for you in the way that you're writing about it now. I think it's important and particularly in verse, to think about the physicality of feelings, especially when we're talking about, you know, huge, um, overwhelming emotions like grief, that it, it, it doesn't feel like the body is enough to contain it. And so I, I had to think about how the language needed to spread in the way that grief almost seems to touch all of the things in your life. Like I wanted to show it's, it's the world of the characters that's been flipped upside down entirely. Hmm. So the two characters, these are two sisters, and the story is told um, from both of their perspectives. We have Camino, who lives in the Dominican Republic, and we have Yahaira, who's in New York. Can you tell us a bit about how they're different from each other? Yes, and I'll share a secret. The novel was originally written entirely in Yahaira's point of view. So only the sister in New York um, was the kind of recorder of what was going on. And I was having a conversation with the novelist, Ibi Zaboy, who is Haitian-American. And, and she mentioned, you know, Liz, I think we need to hear the other sister. And I had been kind of pondering. I'd finished the manuscript and felt like there was something missing. So I needed this other character. And so I had to develop Camino's voice in contrast to Yahaira. What is it that she can bring to the story that isn't already here? And it was this kind of rootedness to the Dominican Republic, this um, push to understand kind of how immigration could work and, or how immigration is denied, but also sex tourism, which is a big part of the of, you know tourism in the Dominican Republic. And so the character of Camino is kind of thinking of why do people leave their homes? What is it that pushes someone to say, I love this place and I cannot be here anymore? 
and I think the character of Yahaira is is more thinking through what does it mean to be a young American girl who is queer and also read as black and also um, contemplating the fraught relationship I have with my father. And, and both girls have fraught relationships, but they had different purposes for me. Hmm. Would you read us a passage uh, from the book so that we can hear the voices uh, or the voice of one of one of these characters, um, the, the voice of Yahaira, who's the sister you talked about who lives in New York? Um, and in this passage that I'd love for you to read, she's talking about her identity and her connection, as you mentioned, to the, the Dominican Republic, this place that she is you know, that her family is from, but that she's never been. Sure. So this is in Yahaira's voice. I was raised so damn Dominican. Spanish, my first language. Bachata, a reminder of the power of my body. Platano and salami for years before I ever tasted peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. If you asked me what I was, and you meant in terms of culture, I'd say Dominican. No hesitation, no question about it. Can you be from a place you have never been? You can find the island stamped all over me, but what would the island find if I was there? Can you claim a home that does not know you, much less claim you as its own? It's beautifully read. Uh Beautifully read. That's Elizabeth Acevedo reading from her no new novel called Clap When You Land. So that's Yahaira's voice, but it sounds a little bit like your experience. I mean, you grew up in, in New York, um, but your family is from the Dominican Republic. Were you drawing a lot on, on where you came from to, to write that character? I was. I was drawing on some of the questions that I remember asking myself when I was younger as I began exploring, you know, what is not the received identity, not just the the way that I've been told um, I should move through the world, but let me sit with it a little bit more. And it's one of those things where growing up, I was told, oh, she's Dominican. Listen to how she talks. She's definitely Dominican. And in the you know next sentence, my parents would be like, oh, it's because you were raised here. and You eat cornflakes and you don't really know what it's like. So you're not real Dominican. I'm like, you just stripped me and also like gave it back to me in the same sentence. And I think that kind of um, middle ground of, neither from there nor from here is one that a lot of folks who are first generation have um, written about. And I kind of wanted to add my spin to it. Well, tell me a little bit about a little bit more about your your spin to it, I guess. Like what what is it like to feel like you're growing up between two worlds and in, in one way, you know, you're told that this is something really important, but then in the other way, you're, you're stripped of it or told that, that you're not a real Dominican because you're, you know, born and raised in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's going to be a different journey for everyone. And um, I don't like to be prescriptive, which is why the book is also a little bit fluid in how she's thinking through that and the ways in which Camino responds to her thinking through that. But I, I know that for me, I just, I felt this immense loss in like, I don't fully belong to anyone, right? In, in the U.S., my accent and my skin color and my hair and just the, you know, the the cultural icons that I know or, or find important are not the same as what it seems like the mainstream um, lifts up. But then if I go to DR, like I'm the gringa cousin, I'm the one who has an American accent. I'm the one who, you know, you could pick out from a crowd as not, not being up there. And I, I think what I've attempted to be comfortable with is that that middle space is a, is a space you can belong to. And that there's a lot of us who sit here 
who are almost like the intermediary between there and here. And this um, fluidity is actually powerful. And so I've, you know, try to sit with that while also thinking, well, what are the things that make me insecure? How do I approach that? Do I want to work on my Spanish or do I want to just be okay with like, this is how I talk? Do I want to work on knowing more about the history of the island or am I okay with I know enough? And I think asking those questions um, have been important and, and now we're starting to see them come out in the books. When's the first time that you went to visit Dominican Republic? Like how old were you? Six months old. Oh, Wow. Yeah, my parents took me pretty young. And then I went by by myself when I was eight. I was sent with um, a neighbor who was going and it was my first time going without my parents and going with memory and with kind of my own little personhood. Hmm. Um, and I, my mom has a massive family. She's one of 15 siblings. Um, I have like 61 first cousins and they were all at the airport when I first arrived. <laughs> wow! <laughs> F- 61 first cousins all welcoming you to this I place. I mean, some of them hadn't been born yet, but we'll give a solid like 40. We're probably there. Okay, that's still a pretty big welcome committee. I mean, that had to feel like you were a part of something. I mean, it was it was incredible to this day. Like, I remember the outfit I was wearing. I'm pretty sure my mom dressed me in tweed and this, like, hat, which why you would put a child in that when it's an island of 100-degree <laughs> days, I don't know. But I remember just just the feeling of foreignness, of, oh, I, I don't know these folks, but I do know these folks, and I don't know this place, but but I think I can learn it. And at first, just being kind of homesick and water was different and the lights would go out. And and just by the end of my trip, I, I think I, I was there about a month that time, um, just feeling this huge connection and this, um, thankfully my mom had told me a lot of stories of growing up and, and kind of feeling like, oh yes, here is the place my mother attempted to paint for me. Hmm. Elizabeth Acevedo is my guest here on Q. She's uh, talking about her new novel, Clap When You Land. Um, I mentioned that it's written in verse. You, you've read us one passage, and we're going to hear another passage from the book. We've been talking about the father character in this story whose sudden and tragic death in this plane crash um, gal- galvanizes uh, you know, all, all of the action. And he's a complicated man. So let's, let's hear um, about him from, from page 285, if you would read some for us. Papi will have two funerals. Papi will have two ceremonies. Papi will be mourned in two countries. Papi will be said goodbye to here and there. Papi had two lives. Papi had two daughters. Papi was a man split in two, playing a game against himself. But the problem with that is that in order to win, you also always lose. That's Elizabeth Acevedo reading from her new book called Clap When You Land. So tell us a little bit more about Papi, uh, about, about his character. This was a character that um, I, I spent a lot of time with. He's almost like this, um, this haunting of the novel. We never see him. I knew that from the beginning, I didn't want him to physically be in the story because he was already going to take up so much room, right? And he's, he's, he's palpable, I think, throughout um, his legacy, but also the questions, the secrets, what he brings up for people is just uh, a force in the air. And it, it was a hard character. I mean, I think when you were talking about someone who so, um, 
so almost intentionally hurt his family, either by keeping information or by his actions? How do you redeem that character? And should you? Mm. And those kinds of questions were big for me. And I, I just kept thinking, you know, I know a lot of folks who had siblings that they learn about much later or who or they learn about early on and just know like, yeah, my father has a household in the Bronx and he has a household in Manhattan. And that's just how we live, right? And and how can I talk about the ways in which that is a part of the community that I'm in and also make it so that if a young person who comes from that kind of background, has that kind of family dynamic, reads this, they feel like I did, like I was tender, right? Like I was thoughtful about, I recognize that this man may have done some some shitty things. I don't know if I can curse, some terrible things. But also I, I recognize that this man maybe was trying to be a good father, like just letting the complication ring throughout. And, and the same questions I was asking myself, allowing the characters to ask, I thought that that was the best way to kind of create who he was. Another element of that, of his character that I thought was so beautiful um, is that he's, he's, he's dead. And so these young women are having to reckon with his legacy without being able to ask him questions about it. And it made me think of this quote that I love um, by, uh, it's a writer, I think his name is Robert Brolt. And um, it's, he says, life becomes easier when you learn to accept the apology you never got. Like, it's like, what do you, what do you do when you can't say to your dad, like, why did you do this? You know? Yeah. Yeah, If you can't rail if you can't, um, I think there's also a lot to be said about denying people forgiveness, like the righteousness of yeah. you are wrong and I, I'm going to sit on the fact that I'm right for a while. Yeah. And like that denial is also big. Like the girls couldn't even say like you who have always thought you did everything right and who pushed us in so many different ways, like never owned your own, um, your own humanity in the ways, your own flaws. And I, 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 you know, this is not atypical for my other books either. I, I really wrestle with can characters accept the imperfections of their parents and the fact that their parents aren't heroes. And if you learn that as a teenager, very viscerally, what do you do? And that might be one of the central questions. What is forgiveness? What does redemption? What does um, a journey of becoming your own hero, which I would argue might be the journey towards adulthood look like? Um, yeah, so I don't know. That's a big thing for me, like, especially if you come from, from folks who were never taught how to apologize, you know, like, how do you navigate that? I think the books kind of try to give templates and none of, none of the parents in my books ever apologize, but the characters have to figure out, can I allow you in my life despite that? Wow. The becoming your own hero as, as the process of turning into an adult. I mean, that's just a profound thing to say. How did you do that for yourself? Oh, I think I'm still doing. (laughs) I think the books allow me to uh, cast forward the braver self, but I, it's, it's what I'm, I'm still learning. Just, you know, how do I create boundaries? How do I tell folks you've hurt me? And until you reconcile that, I'm not sure you can be in my life, Right. right? That that is being heroic for yourself. That is saving yourself from hurt. And also, how do I learn? Like, there are things my own father has done he will never say sorry for. And I think having him in my life is so important that I will will recognize that his apology may not look or sound the way I need it to. 
but there are other ways for me to recognize that there's love here, even if there may not be um, interrogation of like of self or self-awareness of harm. Right. And that might be my own journey of finally being able to say, hey, these are the things you've done. Right. And, and maybe that's I'm still becoming an adult, still learning how to be a hero for myself and, and do that. Yeah. Um, this is Elizabeth Acevedo, and we're talking about her new novel called Clap When You Land. Um, there's some really powerful parts of the book where the, the two sisters are reflecting on their appearances, the differences in their appearances. And one is darker skin than the other. She's also much darker than her own mother. Why was that an important part of the story for you? I think that in the U.S. and, and potentially globally, we're having a lot of conversations about colorism. And in the Dominican Republic, you know, historically, there has been a lot of um, wanting to move towards whiteness that is kind of ingrained in beauty standards and how folks are raised. Like, I'll put a clothespin on your nose so it'll look more you know, thinner. Oh, you should straighten your hair. I mean, Dominicans are known for our hair salons and the ways in which we have methods that no one else has to, to make your hair pin straight, you know, skin bleaching. I, I mean, I'm not saying everyone, but it has been a part of um, the ways in which we racialize ourselves. And so if you are someone who is much darker than your own parent um, and also than a sister you meet, I think that there are questions there, like what is our role in society? How would we be treated differently, even though we are all blood, right? And and those are questions that come up often when you're from, you know, a, a mixture of, of of ethnicities where your family members may not look the same. And I, I wanted to ask those hard questions of blackness, honestly, of of how expansive it is, and also how we have to be thoughtful in having conversations about it. Yeah, even with people that you love, even with people who are in your family or even if with your own are, siblings yeah. and your own parents and your own cousins who might say things about black folks, even as you sit there as a dark skinned kid. Right. Like, you know, which is Yahira's case. Like she she was called uglier because she was darker and had to learn, like, how do I love myself and my own beauty, despite the fact that I don't reflect my mom, who is absolutely gorgeous and very fair, or my sister, who is absolutely gorgeous and lighter and myself, who is, you know, absolutely gorgeous and darker like what what does it mean to use comparisons but also learn this this self-love that is inherent and that I think a lot of dark-skinned Latinx people are denied sometimes the ability to know like you are fully human and loved and beautiful even though media has been telling us for years that you don't deserve to be on tv or in magazines or on the covers of novels it's a beat it's a pretty powerful thing to represent in a, in a teen novel. I keep forgetting that this is like a novel that, that's part of Harper Teen because I related to it so much as somebody in my 30s. Um, so just incredible for, for you to share that with, with young minds. Um, I just, uh, I've heard that you make unofficial playlists for each of your books. I could sit and talk to you about this all day, by the way, um, but, I, but I, have to, I have to end things here. I just want to know if you, would, if you would choose a song for us to go on that might be part of one of the uh, playlists that you made while you were writing this book. I would tell folks to look up Xiomara Fortuna. She's someone that is mentioned in the book that um, Camino and her aunt listened to. She's a Dominican icon, and I just really want to celebrate her work. So we'll go out on a song by Xiomara and Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being here and congratulations on a really stunning book. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Mm-hmm.
That's Yomara Fortuna with Awaitama. Just before that, you heard from the writer Elizabeth Acevedo. Uh, I asked her for a song that suited her book, Clap When You Land. That's what she chose. Elizabeth's new novel is out everywhere now. That's it for Q, the podcast, July 24th, Friday. I'm Talia Schlanger. Thanks so much for Tom Power for letting me sit in today. Tom is back with you on Monday talking to just the... I want to say effervescent is the first word that popped to my my mind. I'm going to stick with it. Tracy Ellis Ross about her new movie called The High Note. The movie challenges some of the stereotypes uh, that that women are subjected to in the music industry as they grow older. This is something that is really personal to Tracy, given her famous mother, who is Diana Ross. She delivers a stellar performance in the movie. I can't wait to hear Tom talk to Tracy about it. And uh, I hope you'll come back for that. Thanks so much. I'm Talia Schlanger, and this is Cube. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.